Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a very special guest. Coach Dolan joins us here from Boston and what I really think you guys will enjoy is his perspective of not only training but also living as a, as a high-level operator um, within the law enforcement and tactical space but then also as an athlete and specifically now as he kind of goes forward and you know his program of really trying to push the envelope of what we're capable of, both from the brain standpoint, from the, the mind, the body, um, and, and really what can we, we do to really push our performance to the next frontier. So I think today you're really going to enjoy um, this conversation. Um, without further ado, though, I'd like him to give us a little intro, introduce himself, and then also kind of uh, his background, uh, and then we'll get right into the, uh, the thick of things. So Coach Dolan, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Coach Newman, it's an honor and a privilege to do so. Uh, I'm excited to connect with you today. So just a little bit about myself. I'm, I, I live north of Boston, uh, born and raised up in this area. Uh, I've been an athlete my whole life. Uh, I competed uh, in football, basketball. Um, I was a boxer. Uh, I played football at Merrimack College. I, I boxed for All-American Heavyweights boxing team in Los Angeles, California thereafter. Uh, after my boxing career, I joined the U.S. Army. Uh, I was a non-commissioned officer and then a commissioned officer. Um, I then joined the Massachusetts State Police, uh, where I, I, I worked primarily, I served on two teams, one, the Special Tactical Operations Team as a breacher, and two, uh, as a detective with the Violent Fugitive Apprehension Section attached to the U.S. Marshals. Uh, that was the majority of my career there. Um, I am, I've also served as a leadership instructor with a company called The Program, Leadership Development Team Building, uh, best in the country at, the, at those. Um, uh, so if I had to sum myself up into two words, it's, it's at, I said three words, Tom, athletes, athlete, leader, and teammate. That's awesome. And again, too, I want to dive into that a little bit because I know you and I, um, have had extensive conversations on performance. And, you know, as we talked about a little bit before we got on, what I'm so fascinated on right now is really kind of unlocking the mind. Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, state police, you mentioned the army, what I think people don't understand, especially in the collegiate setting, is that at the highest level of, and I think athletics or specifically as an operator, everybody can run. Everybody can shoot. Um, it's more of a readiness game. Uh, an, an inch on your vertical jump going from a 40 to a 41 inch vert isn't necessarily going to uh, make you better or make you last longer. Uh, but certainly with dealing with this population, the repetitive movements, um, but then also the seriousness of failure. It's a catastrophic failure. So I really want to dive into that. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, you've had quite a career. What are some of the things just for call it a physical training standpoint? Have you noticed that's changed, evolved for better or worse since you were in the army um, and, and through your, your time in law enforcement? Yeah, Tom, that's a great question. I think what comes up for me now is I had the honor of working with a sport performance psychologist uh, named Dr. Michael Gervais, he works with the Seahawks now. Um, um, among a bunch of other athletes when I was boxing. Um, the skill set we worked with him is, was mindset skills, but the primary one that changed kind of my, my life, my performance, my well-being, my resiliency is mindfulness. So I learned uh, this skill one-on-one uh, -on -one and with our, with our team uh, back uh, when I was boxing. Uh, and over the last 15 plus years have been um, steadily practicing that. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, um, to be an athlete and sustain high performance over time, as you know, there's three things you can train. One is your, is your body, which most people understand that, right? We have strength coaches for that. We have nutritionists for that. We have 
you know, all kinds of cool gadgets now coming out. The next is your skill set, right? So um, that we, we understand that skill, skills positions in football, they, they train their skills, specific skills toward, to help them with their craft. And then the third and most and one of the most important, is, I think, is the mind. Coach Dolan, you, you've obviously had quite an extensive career, both as an athlete and as an operator. What have you noticed since, you know, kind of your early days um, throughout college and then throughout the Army? What are some of the biggest things that you've seen have, that have changed, you know, for better or worse um, with the way that people approach, you know, high performance training? Yeah, Tom, uh, Tom that's a great question. I think right off the bat, what comes up for me is, is mindset training, right? Something that we, you know, probably didn't really hear much of uh, when we were younger, Um I had the honor uh, and privilege of working with a sport and performance psychologist named Dr. Michael Gervais, works at the Seahawks and Olympians and a bunch of business leaders now. And uh, early in his career, uh, he worked with my, my, my boxing team. And so I had the opportunity to work one-on-one with him and, um, and in group settings with him, uh, learning mindset skills. Um, one of those that, that really changed my life is, is mindfulness training. Um, something I've practiced since. And, and I would say if I had to pick one, uh, aspect of training that I think can um, really enhance performance, well-being, resiliency on any battlefield, on any field of play, uh, that, that would be it for me. So to kind of capitalize that, I think um, the three things we can train to sustain high performance are our, our body, which you know very well, right, about most of us understand that. Uh, we need to be bigger, faster, stronger. We need to be uh, resilient. We need to know, we need to be able, you know, be able to recover. Um, and then uh, our skill set, obviously, right? So if you're, a, if you're a tactical operator, you need to be great at communications. You need to be great at shooting. You need to be great at moving. You need to be great at driving and doing all these, these types of things. Um, but the third aspect is like to, to circle back on what my, my point here is the mind. To sustain high performance, we must train mind, body, and, uh, and, and our skills uh, to, to, again, sustain that performance over time. You know, I, I hear you. Um, obviously, you know, you look at the top guys, they can all run, they can all shoot. You know, if we think about in sports, they can do the skills. But, you know, anytime I hear mindfulness, it gets kind of fluffy pretty quickly. Um, and again, in situations where you're going to have to be uncomfortable, you're going to have to do things, you know, that you may not want to do. How do you how do you work that into your practice? but without it getting soft and fluffy. Cause I'll tell you right now, like if I've got a football team or if I've got a group of individuals, like we got a role and, and again, we've got a lot of things we need to accomplish. How much time am I dedicating towards this or what's an actual way to implement it to make a difference? Cause if I make someone 20 pounds heavier, if I make someone two tenths of a second faster, um, that's going to help our organization. But I kind of feel like the mindfulness uh, world can get kind of fluffy pretty quickly, but I don't really know how I would go about you know, quantifying that it's working or not. Mm -hmm. Well, what a great, what a great statement. And I think it's, this is one that's been around for, for a bit and, and, I, and I'm happy to speak on it. Um, if I could answer your question with uh, maybe a metaphor for what I think mindfulness is and how it could benefit. So I look at um, our brain, like the actual tissue as the hardware, it's the computer, right? Um, to, to that, that runs the operations of the human, right? When I think of our mind, right? The, the distinguish between mind and brain, our mind is the software that runs on that computer, okay? So how we use our mind, the states of our mind, uh, science has showed now through neuroplasticity, will 
will change the neurobiology of the brain. Now, what do, what do I mean? I mean that how we use our mind actually dictates the formation of our brain. Okay. So mindfulness to bring it into this, into this um, kind of topic here, mindfulness is two things. One, it's a, it's a state of mind. It's a skill set, right? And two, it's a trait. So the more you practice mindfulness, the ability to contact the present moment, to be aware of situational awareness. We hear this in tactical uh, worlds. If you hear it in, in, in sport world, be situational aware, have your head on a swivel. Uh, mindfulness is that plus internal awareness, right? So it's inner awareness. It's the ability to be an introspective detective and look within and notice what's showing up there, right? So that we can be skillful on how we perform um, when the stakes are high. It's funny you mentioned that. I um, I was talking to another operator and he was talking about, there was a book um, called The Sniper's Mind. And in the book, one of the things they talk about is the grounding effect and can you be grounded? And I think a lot of times I've seen conditioning, you know, uh, really, really can wreak havoc on your brain. As soon as you start getting fatigued, you know, you start getting tired, you start making mistakes and, and individuals will flat out say, I don't know what I was doing. And so one of the techniques was, you're in a room or say you're training or you're about ready, you're in the stack, you're about ready to breach. What do you see? Name three things you see. What are three things you can smell? What are three things you can hear? And honest to God, that's just, you know, a quick little drill. I think as a coach, if you were dealing with your athletes, they may not be able to do that. And, or in order to get that information, they are just completely out of their mind. They're frustrated, they're stressed. And now, you know, that, that frontal brain is shut off due to that kind of emotional stress. And again, it's a razor's edge of arousal, but not so far that you're out of control. Did you find it was harder in the tactical space or in the athlete space uh, to kind of, you know, rein that, that in? Hmm, that's a good question. And so I, I think, uh, you know, comparing the two, I, I saw myself as a, as a tactical athlete. So I, I prepared and trained the same way I did as, um, as an athlete, uh, as a boxer, uh, football player. Um, and so I would say the stakes are, are obviously higher as a tactical athlete, right? This is life and death um, than in sport. However, for all the viewers to, to, to understand, um, our nervous system doesn't know the difference, right? So if I am afraid of public speaking, right, which is baked in my biology to care about what other people think. It's called FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. If I'm scared of public speaking uh, and I'm about to speak publicly, um, all my nervous system knows is that I'm detecting a threat and then it puts me into this fight or flight, right? This, this uh, sympathetic nervous system response, we call it fight or flight, um, which um, can, to, to speak to what you're talking about, can uh, change my perception of time can make me have this tunnel vision where I'm only seeing one or two things. Um, and depending on my training, my state of being uh, will determine whether I can perform, whether I run away or whether I freeze, right? So um, if that makes sense. So what mindfulness does is back to our metaphor, uh, you have the hardware is the brain, you have the software is the mindset that runs on that brain and determine the, the, the dictated, the, the, the mindset that you run dictates the condition of the actual hardware, the brain, right? Um, mindfulness is the uh, mindset, but also uh, within study show eight weeks, neurobiology changing um, from practice, it also becomes like the, the processor of the brain, okay? So when you practice mindfulness um, readily as part of your training, uh, you'll notice that in, in 
in perceived threat situations in high stakes environments, right? Whether it's you're, you're about to breach a door for a murderer or you're gonna go give a public speech, um, you'll, mindfulness helps you recognize that those internal states. And if they're starting to get to a, a place that is, hey, I'm elevated, my heart rate's coming up, um, my mind's kind of all over the place, you, you, you have a little bit of a warning sign to notice, okay, I have skills for this. What can I do? Let me take a deep breath. Let me ground myself. Like you're saying, let me touch the steel of my rifle so I can feel what that feels like. If I, cause if I can focus on that, then I'm in the, I'm in the present moment. Now I can be skillful on what do I need to do? All right. I need to slow my exhale down. Cause I know it's going to, it's going to lower my heart rate. I'm going to check on my teammates. Cause if I'm feeling this, maybe they're feeling it as well. Um, so mindfulness, it's, it's a game changer. It should be a performance enhancing drug. And I, and I, and as a competitor, I want my, I want those I compete against to believe that it's fluffy, right? Because they can keep and just focus on training their, training their body, training their skills. And that's cool. And they'll perform in the short term. Um, but I know that, that it's a, it's a difference maker um, in the long term for sustained success, well-being, and resiliency. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations um, with administrators that, you know, again, we hear the word mental toughness tossed around all the time. You can't train mental toughness. You can't whatever. And, and I think mental toughness is a catch-all for strength and conditioning coaches where there's no plan and kids get hurt. And usually it's something that they saw from buds training or hell week or whatever. Um, but I do think that when you think about mental toughness, you could really boil it down to the ability to execute under pressure. And we would do drills um, in football where go run. Kids can run, crush their times. Hey, run. But if you jump off sides, your teammates are going to have to do burpees. They have to do 10 burpees. So now we've added a consequence for their brethren, for their teammates. Same drill, same time, same distance, all of a sudden got much more difficult. And if you looked at through our training that we did throughout the summer, they weren't afraid. So the, the idea of failure, the idea of loss, if you can eliminate that, certainly is a mental edge. But it also could be registered as toughness. And my question to you is, at all the levels that you've been at, you know, I can make a vertical jump go up four to six inches in a college career. I can make it better. But if you have a 10 inch vertical jump, there's no training that's going to make you um, have a 40, uh, 40 inch jump. What is the amount of improvement you could expect to see? And again, is it a tiered, you know, below average, average elite, or when the guys are selected on, on any of those assault teams or where it's in the military? And we see this through Delta, through DevGrew, through all the different groups, there's a selection process. How much of that is selection for that talent versus what has to be trained. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is, is uh, your questions about um, selecting a, a, a teammate. And now you, you're speaking about like a, like a tactical team uh, uh, yeah, for, for tactic, for tactical, or even I think about the NFL or any of our professional. Yeah. How much of that is selection, which there has got to be some sort of threshold, but then also yep. as a coach, you know, what can I train you up? And, and I, I may not be able to make you grow taller. I can get you stronger mm. from a mental standpoint. What are some of the improvements that you could see or what, what is that, what is that uh, landscape like? Yeah, that's a good point. I, uh, so uh, what I would say is in order to, to train anyone, right. Um, when it comes to the mindset, they, they have to be willing to, to, to do the work. They'd have to be willing to, 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 be open to the training. Um, I know for, I can speak to, to, you know, tactical teams and, and high performing elite teams. Um, you have the kind of scale of talent matters. Of course, talent matters, right? Uh, we need talent. Um, but character, I would say matters more for long-term success because you bring in someone that's high talent, but they're, um, you know, the military guys, you call them, you know, blue Falcon or, 
uh, Spotlight Ranger or whatever else, they look great on, uh, on, on, on paper, right? Everyone looks at this, they're, they're, you know, they've trained their mind, they, they've trained their body, they've trained their skills, right? They haven't trained their mind. They train their body and they train their skills. And so they look great. However, they're not a great teammate. Um, and because they don't have great character, they're not, they're not a great teammate. Um, that's going to affect uh, the quality of that team, the quality of that culture, and then and ultimately the performance of that team over time. Uh, so I know with us, uh, for our selection period, with the I'll speak to the tactical team at least at the state level. Uh, it's a three three day uh, tryout. Um, we're testing physical abilities with a, a pretty pretty challenging um, you know physical fitness uh, test, uh, max effort, and then we're we're uh, we are also measuring. Um, ability to perform under pressure we, with scenario training and whatnot. Uh, and then we also, um, we have a pretty rigorous uh, firearms qualification uh, that you, you, you go through as well. And then on top of that, for the character piece, you have an interview with some of the senior guys and, and leaders of the team. So that's kind of hitting all of those points. So you, there's been plenty of people, and I can assert this on the special operations level in the military, there's plenty of people that meet all the physical standards. They have a great resume, resume looks awesome, um, but the character isn't there, right? Their personality isn't there. Um, a lot of times you have to sit in a truck with somebody for 20 hours or, or sit out on surveillance with somebody for, you know, 48 hours. And um, if that person's going to be selfish or not going to be a team player, not going to be, you know, uh, looking to help teammates and be selfless, uh, that person's going to hurt the overall team. It doesn't matter how well they can shoot or how much they can bench. But how do I, how do I apply that? if I think about from a collegiate standpoint or call it just regular athletics, obviously I can't do a 20 hour tryout with a recruit, but what if I'm, I'm hearing you correctly is the limiter doesn't seem to be the shooting, the running, the, this, that, the other thing, you guys are really looking for cohesion. You're looking for relationships because you're going to capitalize on those relationships to overall commitment, um, to service and to, you know, performance. Yeah, absolutely. So what comes up for me on that specific topic, Tom, then it would be core values, core values, right? I think, uh, you know, for the program uh, leadership development, we have we're a team of elite instructors um, from elite backgrounds, um, from special operations from almost every branch, um, sport. I mean, it's really um, incredible group of, group, group of, uh, of, of teammates. And our core values are selfless, tough, and discipline, selfless, tough, and discipline. How we look at this is core values are non-negotiable, right? Core values are who you are. Um, you'll 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 hear the words goals and standards a lot, right? Goals are performance based. You you place a goal out there and you and you try to uh, you try to reach the goal. And if you don't, um, no one should be punished, right? Um, it's an opportunity to learn and reattack. Standards. Standards are non-negotiable. Standards are behavioral based. If you don't meet a standard, it's because you chose not to meet that standard. So that's where core values come in. Core values come in and you, and you with a team can describe their core values. So for example, for the program, we're selfless, we're tough and we're disciplined. So a new, a new teammate wants to come in. He looks, he's from the special operations team. He's got a great resume. Um, and like you said, it's tough to, you can't really, you know, go back in time and follow him around. So, I think being super clear on that, our core values here are selfless, tough, and disciplined, and then define what those are, and then explain how we hold each other accountable to it and ourselves accountable to it, um, and then let them know, I want you to think long and hard. If you can be selfless, you can be tough, you can be disciplined, 
um, take this job and you're going to love it here. Uh, and we're going to love you. It's going to be great. If you cannot, um, you're not going to love it here and we're not going to like you and it's not going to be great. Right. So, um, without <laughs> being a genie and knowing the future, uh, cause we can all make mistakes. You can have someone that looks great, seems great. And then all of a sudden, um, they're not, they're not meeting those core value standards. Uh, and I think at that point, um, you, you, you have standards, you hold them to it with whatever disciplines you have, uh, and then go from there. Um, and also just one caveat to this is so important for leaders to understand is you need your best people to, to really emulate your core values and to, and to help you um, kind of set up what those standards are and what's going to happen if you don't reach the standard, uh, because they're the ones that are going to be with their teammates uh, all the time. We know in college sport, uh, coaches only have X amount of time per the NCAA to spend time with their athletes. Um, it's trainers the same, right? But you have athletes that are with each other on the field, off the field, at the party, at the grocery store. They're with each other all the time. So if you have your leaders on the team uh, that are your best people that have the, the, have the, the, the talent, like we call best people, high talent and, um, and emulate core values. Uh, those are the people that are going to move the needle for a championship team. Those are the people that are going to hold uh, everyone accountable um, to those core values. Uh, and those are the people that you can lean on when folks aren't reaching those core values. And that's when we, you're going to make a hard decision. And, and if you're a coach and you're listening, I think every coach has gone to a conference or seminar, core values, and whether it's tough, relentless, or whatever the buzzword is, um, teams typically pick it. The coaches are super fired up. About a week goes by. Two weeks go by, someone missed a practice, someone missed a lift, they didn't, didn't win against the uh, opponent, and then <clears throat> things kind of go out the window. One of the things when I was at Yale and, and now too with clients is I'll ask, okay, you have core values. Did you make them or did your athletes make them or did your team members? Because good core values should be organic and it can't just be, we're going to be tough, we're going to be this, but then, you know, your kids really aren't or the operators are like, that's really not us, so they need to own it. The other trick is if again, I'm coming in to visit your program, yes, you have core values. The first thing I'm going to do is go up to a first year and say, what are your core values? And then they might, you know, read, write, regurgitate back the three words or four words. What does it mean and why? And how do you emulate that each day? And if your athletes or your individuals within your organization cannot articulate to you the importance and how they live that every day, then it's just buzzwords and rhetoric. And I think that's what's often missed in this kind of leadership component. Everybody wants to be tough until it's time to be tough. Everybody wants to be elite. And I, I remember saying to coaches, yeah, so-and-so quit the team. That's not a bad thing because elite by definition shouldn't be in everybody, but you want to get it. And especially if you're taking over a new team, you your core values may have to grow and develop because you know showing up to lift every day is the goal. And then three years from then it might be winning a national championship, but not just coming in with blanket, really tough sounding things that then you as a leader can't toe the line and be accountable. I think that accountability from leadership um, is really where a lot of that stuff falls off. So if I'm a young coach or if I'm taking over a new team, how would you even go about setting that? Would you do it as the coach? Would you ask the kids or how would you go about making it organically? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And, and, you know, obviously a lot of this is our, is our opinions, right. But what we've seen over, over time, um, and you see this as for any leader, right. Uh, you, you named it wonderfully when you said it's just buzzwords, 
because that's what happens. A lot of corporations and teams realize, all right, we need these, these words and rah-rah in the beginning. And, and then we put them all on the wall. And a lot of teams make the mistake of picking seven or eight, right? Uh, words that are values that are important to them. Uh, and to your point, if you can't, if I can't, after I just finished, um, you know, on the, getting off the, off the Aerodyne bike, right? After you just crushed me in a workout. If I can't spit out what my core values are, uh, what the standards are to them, then they're not core, right? There's just some words that I was told to look at at a meeting, all right? Um, so core values are core, meaning that they are, they are part of who you are. We talked about earlier, you know, mind being the software you run on your computer. Core values are software that's ran so much, so much, so many times that they're now part of the hardware, that they're wired into your brain. They are who you are. Um, so to answer that question, it starts with leadership 100%, um, determining what those core values are, and then being specific on what they mean. Uh, and then one step further, standards to hold yourself to every day, right? Because standards, like we said, are behavioral based. You choose to meet or not meet the standard. For an example, at the program, we're disciplined. Discipline is defined for us as we do what we're saying we're gonna do. A standard to that is we respond to all communications with fellow teammates and clients within 24 hours. Now, that's not a goal, that's a standard. If I don't if I don't call my client back within 24 hours, I didn't meet the standard. And then we come up with the consequence, which is usually worse than what our CEO would come up with because we're the best people, because we want to be part of a high performing team with high standards. And that's what we do. This didn't happen over, over, overnight, right? So for you new coaches out there that are just starting out, um, you know, grab your, your, your other coaching staff and your best people, the, the ones that are bought in, the ones that you know um, are, are, are want to create and sustain a championship culture. And I would say choose the core values with them. If, you if the leaders choose it, that's fine, but have those best people uh, define what it means to them uh, and then come up with standards that are um, that you can they can all hold them hold each other accountable to, and then specific consequences that happen if they don't reach those standards. Now, it's raw raw in the beginning because what happens is any as anything that you do that's exciting, it's new, you get dopamine from it, right? After about a week, two weeks, you start losing, you get adapt to it, you start losing that dopamine, right? So now, if it's not reinforced and there's no plan in place, of course it's going to fall by the wayside. Of course, integrity is just going to go out the window, and no one's going to talk about it. Um, so it's up to the leaders, uh, to ensure that they're holding themselves accountable to those core values. They're holding themselves accountable to the standards. And, and, and when someone doesn't reach that standard, which is going to happen because we're human beings, I don't care how elite you are. Someone is going to not meet the standard. The accountability that happens needs to happen or else all trust in those core values and in the leadership is gone. And I would piggy that piggyback that by saying, especially if you're, you know, you're handed a dumpster fire and things are just not good on all fronts, it should mean more to the individuals than it does to the coach. So if you're a coach and you're like, I'm really upset, we didn't meet our standards, but the athletes or the operators don't care, then you didn't do a great job. And one thing I would always do with any team is just have an open meeting, let them air it out. Cause usually before you got there, there was some backstory, there was whatever, get the whole history, but make a defining day to say, we are moving forward and walk me through. And so I can think of an example of a team that we had, you know, everyone doesn't show up to lift. So we're going to sign up. We're going to do it. Okay, cool. Just showing up is one of our standards. Okay. Got it. Someone doesn't, you know, what is that like? Well, they don't get to play or they sit out and all ultimately, especially in today's world of punishments and this and that, like you just, 
it's not the way it was, but the lack of playing, or I had a coach that said the best teacher is the bench. Your teammates don't want you out there. And that kind of pressure should build to, you know, we're going to give five positive touches and, and let your individuals kind of, uh, create their own momentum, if you will, and let it take its time too often. Coaches come in with drill sergeant, brimfire, like it's just, it's not fun. Being part of an elite group that's aligned is fun. I've never met somebody who doesn't get hooked to it, but it's that initial, you know, and it's not going to be everybody. Maybe 20, 60, 20, 20% are going to love it. 60% will do it because leadership said so. And then 20%, maybe your top performers, why would they change? Things are pretty good. I'm pretty comfortable. Don't expect to get everybody, but each year, each cycle that you continue to add individuals, what you're searching for is that 20% or at worst the 60% to now get it. But it, I mean, it takes three years to turn a program around to clear people through in the college setting or clear them through in the high school setting and be willing to build it right. I think that's the mm-hmm. biggest thing on this is try to build it right and not just shock and awe, you know, in a one weekend seminar. Yeah, what comes up for me, on a per- I think what's most personal is, is most general. So if you think about New Year's resolutions, we all know that a lot of people make them and then majority of people don't keep them, right? And I think it's the, an issue is because people don't have an infinite mindset with it. They don't, they have a, a, they have a finite mindset, meaning I'm going to do these, these goals that usually they're probably aren't sustainable. I'm going to work out twice a day and do all these crazy things. And then they, they do it for two weeks and then they lose the dopamine, they lose the discipline, they all these different things. And then they quit completely. Um, so culture building I see is the same way, right? I think it's, you start with being super clear on what you want and why you want to do it. Um, the plan, the plan in place, you have the standards. And I think the standard should be that of which uh, are attainable, right. And, and goals that are attainable. Um, but like we said, standards are behavioral based. So if you're saying that you want all your players to be at the field two hours before practice and do X, Y, Z, blah, blah. Like if you have got people that are super disciplined, they're going to do it. Great. Uh, if you don't, then you might be setting yourself up for, for, for failure, right? Because um, when you take your best people, they will do it, right? Those 20% you're talking about, they're going to do it, um, but the rest won't. Uh, and then what, what's going to happen there? So I think with, with this um, just starting out, I think you, you set your standards at th- that, are, that are high, but attainable for all. And then understand that five years from now, um, our standards are going to change and they, and they should, right. As you, as you continue to go, just like on that personal level, if you get to the point where you're working out twice a day and you're doing these things after building habits for doing the, you know, a little bit less than that for a year, you can build on that and build on that. And I think you see championship cultures, uh, over time, uh, this might trigger some people, Tom, but we'll talk about the Patriots, right? We're Northern guys. Um, why I love them is, is their, their culture is, is set on, on, they have their core values, they have their standards. And if Tom Brady was, was late to a practice Super Bowl week, I promise you he wouldn't play uh, because that's the standard, right? And, and, and he would never do that because that's such an amazing leader and performer and teammate. However, um, they have standards in place and it, it's uncomfortable for some people to notice some decisions that have been made, but those standards are, I mean, they're set and they're non-negotiable. Um, so it doesn't matter if you score three touchdowns, if, if, you're, if you're late or, or, or don't meet a standard, you're not gonna play the next, the next game. And I think that's when we look at programs and whether it's the Patriots or I think about Alabama's them pretty good for themselves or any of the kind of perennial powers, there's a system in place that's independent of individuals, but something that elite individuals all gravitate towards. And that's why it lasts multiple years. And, you know, really, when you think about all of this stuff, 
it, it really gets into some deep psychology. You know, I was fortunate enough at Yale to sit down and have lunch with Mark Brackett and, you know, head of the Emotional Intelligence Center and just even understanding emotional intelligence as, as it drives actions. And he sent me a paper and I can't remember exactly off the top of my head what the official title was, but what it came down to was looking at the athlete in a challenge state or a threat state. As a coach, I always want to challenge you, but I want your response to be, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go and, and, and not afraid of winning or losing. A threat state is you need to do this and they shut down. And so one of my, you know, secrets was I'd ask an athlete, how you doing? If it's good or bad, I'd get pissed. And what do you mean? I, I thought I did well. No, no, no. Did you give maximum effort without fear of consequence? And so whether you run and you failed, whether you, whatever I'm looking at, did you run all the way through? Did you, you know, did you motivate your teammates? Did you give everything you had? And it's, and it's crazy because as soon as you get rid of the good and bad and think about how many little interactions there are with the team, it's unbelievable. People just, hey, why not? I'll just do it. And you know what? I messed up. Doesn't mean I fall off the bandwagon for a week. I'm human and I need to have my partners pull me up. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Can you walk through just kind of the accountability partner and how you guys use that? And specifically, I'm thinking about the text messages that you send me of, okay, you know, give me your three goals, you know, three things you did and one thing looking forward. What was that? And then, you know, kind of how could a coach um, employ that with his team? Hmm. That's a good question. So what you're asking is uh, like accountability measures, how to, how to kind of put accountability into and how to institute it. So with the text message at the end of the day, or how do you look forward and why only one goal? Like, why wouldn't you do 10 goals? Like what, why? Mm, interesting. Okay. Well, one thing I want to touch upon, cause you, you, you brought up a little bit of gold earlier with the threat, the threat state uh, versus challenge state and speaking to the psychology of that. One thing I didn't mention earlier, I'm working towards a doctorate in neuropsychology. I just finished my master's degree in uh, positive performance psychology. And so the, the mind is, is my, uh, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated with it. I always will be a student of it. And, uh, so, uh, the, the doctors from Yale that might be listening, you know, forgive me if, uh, if I don't uh, speak correctly on, on something, but, uh, to the best of my, my ability, um, I, I, I love what you're talking about because it, it does, it speaks to, um, you know, uh, there's a study of growth mindset versus, um, fixed mindset. And the idea here was, uh, young kids that were, um, essentially validated for their performance. Uh, when they're young, they're, they find their identity in that validation, right? So they're going to do whatever they can to get that validation. Uh, in other words, when they get an exam, they're in a threat state because if they don't get the A, they're not going to get the attaboy. They're not going to get the hug or the love, right? So they'll do what they can to get that A. They'll cheat. They're more likely to cheat to do it. They're more likely to, to not put themselves out there and try hard things. They're going to do things that they only know that they can do. They're not going to challenge themselves in front of people because they don't want to look in quotation stupid or dumb. And so I think understanding that is, is, is really important. Now, the other group, uh, they were validated on their effort uh, and specifically on doing hard things, right? On challenging, let me change my word there, challenging things. So um, if, if they put themselves out there and tried really challenging math skills, uh, and field, they were still validated because they were, it was, there was more validation that they got was coming from, um, from them doing, doing something that's challenging for them. Now, over time, they did, they, they, they were less likely to, they were more likely to try harder, you know, more challenging things and then, and then grow because of it. Um, whereas the other group was not doing that because they were, they were essentially getting their sense of sense of self was on their performance. Um, and the interesting part about this, as far as like the neuro, the, the neuroscience of it is 
dopamine is, subje is subjective, right? So depending on how you use that software again, determines uh, when you get that dopamine, right? So uh, for the first group, they get the dopamine when they get the attaboy, when they get the performance, right? This is those the guys that are gonna cheat a monopoly because they don't wanna lose because they, if they lose, who am I? What's my self-worth, right? We see this guys competing on the field and doing all, doing all that. So uh, whereas the other group, they get that dopamine from challenging themselves. So they don't really care if they, if they do well on a test that's easy for them. They want to challenge. They want to push themselves to challenge themselves. And they get the dopamine that way. Uh, and those groups over the longitude um, little studies show that they're going to perform better. They're going to enjoy more well-being because they don't look, as, they don't look at tasks as threatening. They look, to, look at them as challenging. Uh, and, and with the warrior mindset that we have, it's we attack challenges, right? We love challenges. We want challenges. We want to go out there and we want to, we want to fail because there's lessons in it. We learn and pick ourselves up. Are we going to give each other a little bit of shit? Of course we are. Right. But we're going to pick each other up. We're going to keep going. So I think that segues into the accountability piece of, um, you know, when you have your, your goals in, you know, you agreed upon goals you've committed to, uh, and you have your standards that you've committed to, um, when it comes to accountability, I think that standards are the most important, right? Because again, standards are behavioral based. Uh, if you miss a goal, if you, if you set a high goal and you don't hit it, you shouldn't be yelled at and screamed at, but that happens in some places, right? Um, but, but that's not, that's gonna, you're gonna get diminished returns, right? On that, because folks are gonna, are gonna now make their goals a little bit less, right? So that they can get their validation. And um, I think too, as a strength coach, one of the big faults, and, and again, this is kind of a, a legacy thing is, Oh, the, we're going to reward the biggest bencher, the biggest squatter, the biggest pick end goal productivity measure of vertical jump or whatever the thing is. You really want to make sure like that. That's the expectation is your top performers are going to do these physical things. But from a leadership standpoint, did everybody fill out their workout card? Or we would talk about, you know, in their team builder, you know, I don't care what the numbers of productivity are if half the guys didn't fill out their sheets because again, they didn't have that attention to detail. So focusing in on completion of tasks and again filling out your name filling out your weights that takes no athletic ability but it is a commitment to team and culture and so if you're listening as a coach try to really stay away from beating the other opponent or you know getting some number in the weight room because i don't really care biology is biology they're going to get better if they show up but if your culture isn't one where the feedback is from maximum effort and attention to detail and attention to the culture you're going to miss out. And I think to your point, you're feeding the dopamine the wrong way by mm. looking at end outcomes rather than the steps that we know will eventually produce results. Yeah, 100% on that is focusing on, the, on those efforts and specifically uh, the, the, the core values that you have and the standards to them. Um, because the, it, folks that are, that are holding each other accountable to those um, are, are the ones that are going to perform um, you know, sustain their performance over, over time. W one thing I'd like to mention here um, at, at the program, our one, our one mission is to de develop great leaders and develop more co uh, cohesive teams, right? So we define being a, a great leader uh, as someone who accomplishes their mission and takes care of their people. They do those two things. They accomplish their mission and they take care of their people. A great, a great teammate uh, holds himself to a high standard and then helps and demand their teammates reach the same high standard. Right. So, uh, right next, there is, you know, you know, my next question is going to be though, are they made that? or born? Great Who's leader. that now? Be specific. Great, a great leader. leader made or born. Well, that's a, I think that's a, that's a, that's a challenging question. Right. Uh, and, and one that I don't know if could ever be answered by anybody. Um, 
But I think I will say this. I'll, I'll say that um, in order to be a great leader, you have to be a great teammate. That's a that's a price of admission. But not all great teammates are going to be great team leaders, right? You're going to have you're going to have someone. And, and and this is the thing. You don't need your whole team to be lions, right? Um, or or the head lion, right? Um, what you need you need a few <laughs> for sure, and you need to be one. But you need um, you need everyone to be a great teammate, right? Because if you don't have a great team a great teammate um, on in the in the squad or on the team. Uh, that's just, that's going to, it's going to pull everyone down and it's going to, it's going to hurt the culture. And then the lions that you do have, the best people that you do have, the high talent, high character people don't want to be part of that team anymore. They're going to go find another, another pride to run with. Right. So um, to answer your question uh, with redirecting completely, I'm going to say that in order to be a great team leader, you must be first a great teammate. And again, what it means to be a great teammate is you hold yourself to high standards every single day, and then you help and demand your teammates do the same. And this is where that emotional intelligence comes in. Some teammates need to need a boot boot in the ass, and some teammates need, hey, what's going on, man? A, a, an arm an around the shoulder. So that's that emotional intelligence piece that's huge. Uh, not everyone's going to have it, but uh, if if your folks can can commit to being uh, great teammates, hold themselves to high standards, and then helping helping uh, their teammates do the same, um, those are the folks that in time, once that becomes easy for them, then they can learn how to then, hey, you got to focus on accomplishing the mission. This is thinking more about just what you're doing. This is understanding what your mission is, accomplishing it, and, and taking care of everybody, not just yourself and the, the, the one or two guys next to you, taking care of everybody. And this is thinking about that long-term. How, how is, what, what is the best interest of everybody long-term? And, and I think you know, it is, it's, it's a combination of, you know, raw talent, you know, are you emotionally intelligent? I mean, IQ is what it is. Some have it, some don't, there's a minimum amount, um, you know, EQ is the same way. Um, but how do you create an environment that, you know, if you have that piece of coal as a first year, that it turns into a diamond by the fourth year, mm. or it could just stay as coal and it just never, mm. the environment wasn't there to grow. And, and we forget how, quickly individuals will model the people they're around you are your five closest friends so when we think about practice we think about a lift four hours a week maybe practice whatever who are they hanging out with who are they influencing and is it elite mindset because you can't just flip a switch and say ah four hours a week i'm going to be elite and then i'm going to be mediocre the other you know 164 so when we think about culture it's got to be more than just the game it's got to be who your group is as characters, as individuals all the time. Coach, that's a, that's a great, that's a great, great point. And, and I think it all ties into this, this idea of culture and how do you build it? How do you sustain it? And I think it is, it's a long-term game. And it's, it's one of those things, like you said, if you, if you're already, if you're only worrying about the performance this year, or this, or this day, um, then we're not optimizing our ability to build a championship culture right now. This is the same in, in sport like it is in the business world. You're being held to, to standards of what the stock market looked this week. What are you going to do at your, 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 the end of the quarter, at the end of the year? So leaders are going to be held to these, to these standards, and that's going to put them in probably a threat state, like you said. Uh, and that might make them make decisions that are against the best interest of building that culture. Um, but I'll tell you, the best leaders, they're, they're, they're making every decision with the team's best interest at heart. Uh, focused on those core values and looking at their higher purpose, their vision and what they want. They don't just say, well, I want to win games. They have, they have, you know, if you look at the best coaches, they're going to have a higher purpose. That's pretty clear, right? Develop great men, uh, competitors, always compete. Th things, th things that they come up with that make sense for them that they can keep their focus on. And then everyone understands that they can move toward 
because like unlike unlike um, the corporate world, uh, college sports you're losing what thirty percent of your of your of your best people every year, right? So that's a big turnover. So if you don't have that system in place and you're not committed to the long term, that infinite mindset um, that uh, of you know making yourself better, making those around you better, making the the whole organization better, um, you you might get caught up in that short term thinking. You might have that threat mindset, and then you might make some mistakes. Um, you know, in the short term that, that can be detrimental because you're afraid of, you know, the, the, what might happen if you don't win that game. Yeah. And I think we get clients will ask, you know, what am I looking for? You know, what should we do? And, and I mean, the thing is the character evaluation, the cultural evaluation takes time. It takes a coach's eye because, you know, we'll roll in our plates. Someone gets 85, you know, Watts peak relative, Right. So that's NFL-esque approaching numbers and 90, 95, 90. So this oh, if they've got these numbers, this means they're going to be good. And my answer is no. It means they're less likely to suck. They could be a terrible teammate. They could be this. But if I have a hundred individuals, and then of those hundred, only five are even, you know, by measurables in our class, and probably what you alluded to with shooting, running, this, that, it'll thin the herd. But then really as a coach your priority should shift from the measurables to the intangibles because that's really going from good to great, great to elite, that your time just has to be repurposed. If I have 100 hours and 100 guys, that's one hour a, per a person. And same thing for the ladies. But if I can give you five, how do you invest those 100 hours now? And I would you know, urge every coach, really focus in on, are they team players? When you interview them and you talk to them, is it about them and their grades and what they did? Or are they talking about their five best friends? Are they talking about, you know, um, kind of group dynamic stuff? Really spend that time because I think ultimately the people that can buy into team, that can buy into relationships, I think they have a much higher ceiling on all fronts of development, especially as an individual and then as a culture. Yeah, coach, that's a great, that's a great point. One thing we talk about, um, we call it the, 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 the coaching triangle and um, as far as how do you, there's only so much, so much time you can spend with athletes. There's only so much time right in the, in the year. And so as far as like what you're talking about from, you know, maybe redshirt freshman for the sport world, redshirt freshman, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, um, the triangle is this when they're, when they're brand new to the program, you know, you've recruited them. And, and obviously if you've recruited based on talent and core values, then you, you might have a, you know, a, a decent group there, right. From that group, uh, you owe it to them to coach them, to mentor them, to, to do kind of everything you can to make sure that they're going to be up to speed, to be one of us, to be a, a high performing teammate. Now, the triangle, the, the, if you look at the triangle, the bottom of the triangle is the biggest part. So their freshman year, you owe it more time uh, to them, right? Because you've recruited them in. Um, then the second part of that tier is going to be uh, manage, right? Um, so these are maybe your late sophomores, juniors, you're more managing them, right? Cause either they're in or they're, or they're, they're either they're all in, uh, there's someone in, or they're never going to be in. They're never going to be in. Maybe we, 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 we figure make hard decisions there. Uh, but in, in any event, we're going to be managing them. By the time that you become a, a senior, you're later in the program and you realize that the coaching and mentoring is not working completely. Um, you're, you're in that command state, right? So now it's just like, you got to do this. You got to do that. Go here, go there, do this. You're not giving them as much time and effort um, because uh, those new freshmen need it and they, and they deserve it. Um, and most of us coaches, we have huge hearts and we, we, we think people can change and, and we want them to change. And we want to give them time. 
but we owe it to um, those new members on the team to really give them the time and effort that they need to, to become you know, uh, one of us, if, if, if you will. Um, and then figuring out when do I flip the, flip the triangle? When do I flip the triangle on a, on a certain athlete? Um, I don't know. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it just coaches needing to understand, especially early on, are you spending more time on X's and O's or do you know, you know, what's going on at home? Do you know the person that you're working with? And mm. as you mentioned, as the program grows, hopefully your juniors and seniors are the ones modeling the behavior you want so you can mm. shift your time. And and again, it may be, I spend 5% less time with a junior or senior, but I'm going to reinvest that back. But I don't think you can ever walk away uh, from relationship building, either as a leader or within your culture and team. Oh, hundred percent. I think on that, on that point, one thing we've, we've seen, and I've definitely seen from being a part of different teams is, um, you know, the, the highest performing, highest successful, best places to be a part of are relationship based. And it's all about relationships. And it's all about uh, one thing you said earlier is that emotional intelligence. Um, one thing I will, I will push back on a little bit is um, emotional intelligence is absolutely trainable. Um, and there's, there's good, there's good research on that, but, and, and that's, we'll tie into the, you can definitely tie in mindfulness to that, but um, the emotional intelligence piece is so big. And I think it's so important for leaders and, and, and any field to understand corporate um, business, tactical, emotional intelligence, I think is a, is a higher indicator to, to successful leadership over time. Um, and the four pillars of it are, one is, is, is self-awareness, right? So that, look, let's look at it like a house. The bottom of the foundation of the house is self-awareness. Um, so you need to understand what's showing up inside of you, thoughts, emotions, sensations, all these different things. You need to understand what those are. Now, if you're most men and you've been taught not to feel and not to do any of that, and you move away from it, all, you know, then you're probably not going to have much skill on, on being aware of those things. So that's step one. That's the foundation of the house. The first floor is going to be um, social awareness. Once I'm aware of what shows up in me, thoughts, emotions, sensations, I'm now raising like, a, like the tide, raising up my awareness of others. So now I'm, I can notice in my teammate, I can notice in someone I'm leading that something might be showing up in them and maybe what it is. So I can be skillful and ask questions on what that is. So you have self-awareness, social awareness, and then, I'm sorry, I, I, mess, I messed this up a little bit. Self-awareness, self-management, okay? So self-awareness, you, you see what's showing up in you. So then now you can be skillful on managing yourself. So if you realize I'm going to have an argument with maybe my, my loved one and I'm noticing that I'm, I'm getting warm and the blood's coming up and now I realize that I'm not thinking straight, that's now I can be skillful on, on, on my management. Let me take a couple of breaths to take a walk. So um, that, that third pillar is going to be then that social awareness. So if I can be self-aware and manage myself uh, um, skillfully, then I can, I'm going to be more likely to be aware of my athletes and those around me and my coworkers um, awareness of, of what might be showing up in them. And then that's relationship management is the, is the roof of that house. Right. So, um, so self-awareness, self-management, uh, social awareness, uh, so uh, relationship management. And I think that is what, if, if all of, if every leader um, that has influence in the world understands emotional intelligence and commits to learning it, uh, not only will the performance um, of their team over time be sustained, but lasting change in the world would happen well-being across the ripple effect of, of, of those, of that work that that leader does uh, will make a huge difference. Um, and I, and I want to say, you know, specifically to, um, the, the, those who don't, if you're a leader and you have influence and you are, and you have low emotional intelligence, everyone under you suffers, everyone under you suffers. And there's no doubt why you have turnover. There's no doubt why you're, 
<laughs> you're losing coaches, you're losing players. There's no doubt why you're not optimizing the performance of everybody because you're not optimizing their well-being or resilience, and they don't feel like they're part of the team, and they don't feel like they're seen or heard. And uh, that's something I want to talk about a little bit later um, with what I've noticed on the folks that I I would uh, from my investigations. Um, but leaders, if I can say anything, it's understand emotional intelligence and commit to raising your EQ. Um, because everyone under your influence and in your charge will benefit from it um, to include you and, and those around you that you care about. Okay, I'm sold. What do I do though? So I like this EQ thing. I don't know what, what's the next step or how do I go about you know, trying to address that? If I know and I'm honest as a leader, that's not a strong, a strong suit of mine or it's not a strength, what do I do? Yeah, that's a great point. So that's, that, that's where I think we can now, we're tying in, we started with uh, maybe one of the, 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 the fears or, or, or beliefs about like mindfulness, right? It's soft or fluffy or whatever. Um, so I, I look at it, you know, mindfulness is it, mindfulness training, right? So um, either finding a mindfulness coach, I happen to be one, a uh, trainer, um, a mindfulness program, mindfulness app. Mindfulness uh, is uh, essentially you're, you're training your, your ability to contact the present moment, notice what's showing up outside of you, notice what's showing up inside of you, um, and the more you notice that, the more you train, the more you notice, the more you notice, the more of an of empowered you are to, to behave differently, right? Um, the framework that I use as a, as, a, as a coach is acceptance and commitment training. So essentially it's, it's mindfulness with, um, with value-driven behavior and discipline. So what's that, what does that mean? It's, so if uh, I am able to uh, notice that I'm, my, my blood's getting warm because someone said something that would upset me, right? Now I can say, okay, what the, the, adrenaline, the adrenaline in my system wants me to lash out and say this thing, but because I've, I've, I'm self-aware a little bit, I noticed that that's not, that doesn't align with my values big picture. So I'm going to choose not to do that. I'm going to have the discipline to choose not to do that. And I'm going to think of a behavior that aligns with my values so that in this moment, I'm going to do that. It might be walk away. It might be take a deep breath. It might be be honest with the person and say, hey, listen, I don't think we should have this conversation right now, whatever it is. So step one, step one, I think would really be learning about mindfulness training um, and, and committing to practice it because the research on it is really, um, it's, it's stacking up and it's, and it's really something that it's free. Uh, once you learn how to do it, it's, it's free. It's something you can train all the time. And the more you do it, um, the more benefit you'll, you'll, you'll get. So one, one thing that went like land with people is, um, the, um, the, some, some, from some research, uh, the brain of a 50 year old long-term meditator was the biology of it was similar to that of a healthy 25 year old. And so understanding that, uh, mindfulness training it, itself, um, again, after about eight weeks, they see changes in, in gray matter and, and uh, major parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and then decreased gray matter in the, the amygdala, which is that, that threat center, right? That threat emotional command center. Um, so I think, I think benefits that, that we could all benefit from. And again, leadership is influence. So if, if a leader does this work, this self-work, it makes themselves better, makes themselves more emotionally intelligent then every single human being under them benefits from it. Yeah. Now you alluded a little bit to some stories that it sounds like you have of where individuals maybe didn't control that they weren't very aware and you know maybe they had actions that they regretted later on and again we all make mistakes we all 
you know, feel emotion, but I think giving tools, especially too, if you're dealing with a younger population, I'd even go high school to, to college, learning how to handle your emotions and the actions, as you mentioned, I want to fly off the handle. Well, you know, what's, what's, what's the consequence of that? And really teaching the tools to actually, just as you would read a play in football or you'd read a play in whatever, that they would go through that process and actually don't just say, just do the right thing or do whatever. Cause they may not know in that moment because they don't have the tools in the toolbox to bring it back down from a physiological standpoint or a psychological standpoint, you need to teach them. What are some stories you have of individuals that, you know, maybe could have done better? Oh boy. Um, a lot of them probably. Right. But, uh, so I think one thing I noticed, right. My, my kind of dream when I was younger in, in law enforcement is I want to go get the wolf. I want to get the bad guy. Right. And, um, and so you go into that career and, and you, um, that's what you do. You're laser focused. And again, I'm, I always treat it like, like myself, like a tactical athlete, I'm going to train mind, body craft. I'm going to go out there and grind. And, uh, and I did that. And, and so as a, as a violent fugitive detective, um, you know, over, I don't know how many, but over a thousand cases, uh, my team is probably involved in over 200 uh, murder uh, apprehensions. Um, my specific job uh, that I was pretty good at was social media tracking and digital tracking. And, um, and so what I would do is I would get a folder um, on somebody, hey, either they just commit this crime or they or were looking for them. And then I would, I would just start looking at everything in that person's history. I, I wanted to know everything, right? Because I, I always understood that uh, there are patterns in behavior. And as, as humans, we are, we are habitual creatures, right? And so I always knew that in my mind, I believe that in this, in the data of this person's history is going to, is going to give me some kind of nugget that's going to help me locate them, right? Via their past behaviors. So I would look at where they were raised, how they were raised. I would interview folks. If it wasn't going to hurt the investigation, I interview folks that were intimate with them, uh, either directly or indirectly. Um, I want to know what they did last time they got arrested. I wanted to know what they did, um, who visited them in jail, who didn't, who gave them money in the canteen, who didn't, how did they communicate with others? Um, how do they, who they rely on, uh, who they talk to through social media. I mean, I want to know everything. Uh, and then all, I mean, almost every single time I'd, I'd, I would find something from that research that's going to help me to figure out what this person's going to do or what they might have already done and, and try to help me find them. So Tom, I started my career wanting to get the bad guy. And I, I learned early on that you need tactical empathy to do so because when I read a report of someone that of something someone uh, allegedly did, all kinds of emotions are going to come up. Right. Uh, and you're going to feel all kinds of things like, man, I want to, I want to, I want to find this person. I want to, I want to, I want to find him in an alley. Right. Like, and does that make you um, a more useful detective or, or a less useful one? Right. Probably, probably less useful. Right. So I learned earlier on, all right. Tactical empathy means take a pause, take a breath. I want to look at the world through this person's eyes. And I want to understand what they believe and why they believe it so that I can understand what they're going to do and why they did it. Right. And so it takes a certain level of emotional intelligence to do that and, and mindfulness to do that, because uh, otherwise you're just laser focused on getting this person in um, as hard and fast as you can, regardless of, you know, the, the violence needed um, potentially for it. Right. So um, tactical empathy for me over time turned into actual empathy, right? Cause I started looking at these cases and a lot of people I, I investigated or, or worked or um, in that case, I ended up work, working or you're going to have mostly young males between, you know, 14 and you know 30. Um, and I'm seeing the same things over and over and over again. And my understanding of psychology is this, when 
as a, as a child, when you don't feel seen and heard, um, the, a lot of these folks, what I noticed is that they would make others see them um, and hear them with violence. Um, when you're not seen and heard though, you don't feel like you, your life matters. And as a human, if you don't believe your life matters, then as a byproduct of that, you don't think anyone else's life matters, similar to that emotional intelligence, okay? Now, uh, the last piece of this is this the human need is um, worthy, worthiness, right? If I'm seen, if a young child is seen and heard, then they, they believe that their life matters. If they believe that life matters, they believe that they're worthy of happiness, success, all these things. What I notice is a lot of these kids involved in gangs and cartels and different things, they believe that they were worthy of success, but only illegitimate success, right? Uh, how they how they how they showed up on the street or where their ranks were in the gangs or different things like that. They weren't they didn't believe that they were worthy of running a business, owning a business, being part of government, doing these different things. So it was incredibly sad for me. I think over time when I started when I'm working these cases and I'm realizing, wow, like you know, um, I know exactly. I don't agree with what they what they've done. I still need to be skillful on finding them as soon as possible because the human that they are at this moment is one that's highly likely, highly likely to hurt somebody else or themselves or, or whatever. So uh, I need to find them and, and they need to be, you know, you know, removed from, from the, from the public until they're, you know, deemed safe, you know, to be back in it. Um, however, uh, it, for me over time, I real I realized I felt like I was kind of responding to a problem that already happened that, and I saw the problem because I did the research and it was fucking way, it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I, and uh, as opposed to being part of a bigger solution and creating, you know, some, some changes to systems. Um, so uh, that's one thing I definitely, you know, noticed on that is, is almost every time, um, you know, I, I'm working a case for, for, on somebody, it was lack of emotional intelligence, lack of self worth, belief of self-worth. Um, but with that tactical empathy, Tom, to kind of, kind of button this up, I learned that I think every human being does the best they can at their level of consciousness, at their level of, of uh, their state of being in the moment, their, their health and wellness, and at their, at their level of intelligence, right? What they've been, what they've been taught, what they learn and what they know. And, and uh, I'm not going to say that they, it's like hitting uh, it, but just looking at it without emotion uh, I think that everyone's doing that does the best they can at, at, at those levels. Well, I mean, that's a great segue into kind of what you're doing now. And kind of as we wrap up, would you just like to tell everybody a little bit of some of the projects, you know, that you're working on? And also, too, I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to reach out to you what the best way to do that is. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So I, I started, a, um, I co-founded an organization called One Tribe, which I know you know of because you're a part of it. Um, and so... One, one tribe overall, um, you know, our, our mission is to empower leaders to learn how to, to live and lead authentically uh, and to use their influence to create lasting change in the world. Um, and one of our missions, one of what, what we do is we're going to connect leaders, uh, adult leaders with youth leaders, uh, uh, youth sport leaders, right, um, and lead them on a, on a guided mentorship. Uh, with lessons from positive psychology, performance psychology, neuroscience, leadership development, um, so that they can attack weekly challenges, uh, learn how to optimally lead themselves, and do so together with, um, with uh, you know, mentee and mentor working as teammates to, uh, to attack these challenges together and grow together and to build relationships. Because one thing I realize is I'm working in these high crime areas. And I'm just going with just, it's just, it's like you go and you get some, bring it back. They go back out, they do it again. And you see no change over time. And 
what I'm what I'm focused on now in this stage of my life and moving forward is creating lasting change in the world. And uh, and uh, I believe that's going to happen when um, more people learn how to lead themselves and we all do it together. So rather than depending on blind obedience and having someone tell you how to do what to do, it's learning how to lead yourself um, and doing so with other people. So what they have in common is they're both leaders. Uh, what they also have in common is they're both going to hold themselves to high standards and they're going to become the best version of themselves and then help each other do it. So mentee and mentors are, are, are teammates in that, in that aspect. Um, my belief is that in these, in these uh, high crime areas specifically, um, who is going to change those areas are the leaders that live there, <laughs> right? The government's not going to change it. Um, no one from outside is going to change it. The leaders who live in these, in these areas are the ones uh, who are going to create lasting change in 10 years. They're the ones going to own businesses. They're the ones going to work at local government. Um, so the idea is it's a long-term, just like we talked about earlier with the culture building, right? This is, these are some long-term things that need to happen, but I believe that, you know, to contribute to human flourishing, we need to give the opportunity and tools to more, more leaders, more people, people who have influence. And when I, to be specific on that, I don't mean someone, when I say leader, I don't mean somebody that has a position of leadership. I mean, a human being that has influence and that wants to use that influence to affect positively those around them. That's awesome. So, well, people want to get more information. How do they get involved or how do they reach out to speak to you? Yeah, great. So um, my, from the, through the organization, it's, it's dj at onetribeoneheart.org. Um, I'm sure we can put that in the notes. And then also uh, we're, we're uh, one, tribe, one Tribe, One Heart on Instagram. Um, I'm, I'm conscious operator on Instagram. It's conscious uh, underscore underscore operator on Instagram. Uh, and then our website um, is uh, one tribe, one heart, uh, dot org. Awesome. And for everyone, we'll put that in the show notes. And again, you know, coach, I can't uh, begin to thank you enough. A lot of things to think about a lot of things to kind of immediately address with my groups and uh, also to just some other great nuggets to think both as a leader um, and for athletes as well, just as individuals. So coach, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Coach, thank you so much. You make me better every time we talk. So I appreciate you. Take care. Uh -huh.